1: Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So this is embarrassing to admit, but I had no idea there was a giant exhibition in 1876 celebrating America's centennial. I mean, I'd heard of the 1876 World's Fair, but I didn't realize it was also called the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition. And from the little I've read about it, it sounds Amazing
0: it it does take a big man to admit that you had not heard of that but but what
1: do you mean like what was so amazing about it well first of all the attendance was staggering like 10 million people showed up And that was one-fifth of the U.S. population at the time. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, and and there were tons of incredible things on display. So, like, the arm and torch for the future Statue of Liberty was there. It was just out sitting on a lawn. (laughs) The the first automatic dishwasher was there on display, along with, like, sewing machines and typewriters, a mechanical pencil for people to gawk at. There was also this newfangled thing called Heinz ketchup. You may have heard of it. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, people could test it by dunking pieces of sausage in it, (laughs) but— The two things that got the most hype, the telephone, as demonstrated by Alexander Graham Bell, which people were in total awe of. I mean, this is a lot of amazing stuff in one place. All right, so Mm -hmm. so what was the other thing? The banana. Oh, of course, the banana. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so according to this amazing book, Banana, by Dan Koppel, the fruit was unveiled as this healthy and cheap alternative to the apple. Before then, bananas were the status symbol, almost like caviar. But all of a sudden, they were being marketed to everyone. Actually, let let me read you a quote from one of the admirers there. To my young and impressionable mind, this was the most romantic of all the innumerable things I had seen at any of the vast buildings. It was the tangible, living, and expressive symbol of the far-distant and mysterious tropics. And to be clear, we're, we're talking about a banana here, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> so that that was from uh, Frederick Upham Adams. He was the inventor who'd go on to streamline the locomotive. And of all those incredible inventions, it was the banana that captivated him <laughs> and also the rest of America. But why are bananas so cheap when they come from so far away? And how did the fruit get so popular? And is the banana actually going extinct? That's what today's episode is all about. Why don't we dive in?
0: Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikler. And sitting behind the soundproof glass, sporting a banana rama sweatshirt, is our pal and producer Tristan McNeil. My sweatshirt, Tristan. <laughs> so I know you've been wanting to talk about the banana and whether it's actually going extinct, you know, for a while now. But before we get into that, why don't we tackle a little outstanding business from our Cola Wars episode from last week? I guess mm-hmm. it was right. All right. Well, well first off, we uh, we wanted to have the soda jerks on for a quiz, but unfortunately, it didn't work out because of timing. We wanted to let you know about these guys. The Soda Jerks have a wonderful soda review site and they, you know, taste and review all sorts of sodas from crazy delicious kinds to one
1: that tastes like ranch dressing. <laughs> yeah, that uh that ranch soda review is so great. But when we realized we couldn't have them on, they told us, "Make sure you talk about Crystal Pepsi and how Tab tried to sabotage it." I actually hadn't heard the story before they mentioned it, but now we absolutely have to share it. Definitely. So when Crystal Pepsi came out, it was obviously making this huge splash. And Coke wanted to take the wind out of Pepsi's sales, but they didn't want to release a clear Coke because they thought that could be damaging for their Coke brand. Yeah, that's
0: right. So instead, they did something super devious. Coke took the brand from their stable they knew wasn't popular, which was Tab, and they released a clear version to compete with Pepsi. Did you even remember clear Tab? (laughs) I can't say that I didn't. And they didn't put that much effort to it. And I'm not sure how much they worked on the formula, but they didn't even put the product in a clear bottle to show that it was clear. They just put (laughs) tab clear on the can and let customers assume
1: that it was clear. Right. And as the soda jerks pointed out, this was totally genius, like evil genius. Yeah. And, you know, and because tab was a diet drink, people just assume Crystal
0: Pepsi was diet, too. And it turned off a large percentage of the market. And years later, Coke Insiders admitted that the effort was to kamikaze the brand. I mean, that's their wording. They said that's what the plan was all along. And basically, they knew their Crystal Tab would fail.
1: But they hoped it would take down Crystal Pepsi with it, and it did. (laughs) Yeah, it's a funny bit of history from the Cola Wars that we totally would have missed. And uh, you can find The Soda Jerks at thesodajerks.net. And for those of you who wrote in with brands we should have mentioned, from Iron Brew to Doc Brown's Celery, we promise we'll give them a taste and sneak those into future soda episodes down the line.
0: All right, so I guess we got to get back to banana here. So, Mango, I I know this is on air, but I've got to say I was watching you in the office this week, and I saw you pick up a banana, look around, and then you quickly flipped it around and peeled it. <laughs> but you you weirdly looked so embarrassed doing it. It was kind of like you were doing something sneaky that you weren't supposed to be doing.
1: I know, because eating a banana backwards feels so wrong. So for those of you who don't know, and I'm guessing that's most of you, a few years ago I changed the way I peeled my bananas before, I'd always just use the stem part as the pull tab, kind of a way everyone's trained. It's actually kind of a clunky way to do it because it never actually pulls easily. But then I saw this life hack that if you just turn the banana upside down, not only does that stem become a convenient banana handle, but it's actually way easier to peel. Plus, you don't get any of those annoying strands stuck to your banana. I like how much thought you've put into this, but <laughs> but that actually, that's how monkeys eat them, right? Yeah, so, so for me, that was the kicker, right? Like, when I read that, I was like... Humans, you idiots. Why don't you just eat the way monkeys have been doing it forever? Monkeys are so smart. They're so smart.
0: We should type <laughs> like monkeys. We should, I don't know.
1: I know, everything. But, but then this week I read this article on Business Insider where Catherine Milton, who studies primate diets, went off. Here, I, I'm going to read you this quote. I'm not sure where the myth that monkeys eat bananas started. I personally suspect Curious George, but it's time for it to stop. While monkeys don't eat them, exclamation point. The whole wild monkey-banana connection is a total fabrication. She sounds pretty ticked off, So, but let me get this right. So monkeys don't eat bananas? No, they do eat bananas. Her point was just that monkeys only started eating bananas after humans cultivated them and that bananas are actually too sugary for monkeys and can give them toothaches and diabetes. But when she was pressed on the topic, she gave my favorite quote in the article. Quote, Of course, monkeys and apes aren't stupid. They relish eating bananas once they're exposed to them.
0: Wow. All right. So just to recap on this, wild monkeys don't eat bananas, but civilized monkeys who've been exposed to the finer things do eat bananas, but they shouldn't eat them because of diabetes.
1: <laughs> yeah, bingo. OK,
0: well, I'm glad we've settled that. All right. So I know we've got a lot to say about the banana. And obviously, the big question we're asking today is, are bananas going extinct? But what's kind of strange is that if that happens, this will actually be the second time a top banana has gone extinct.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so you're right. Basically, the banana that everyone fell in love with from the 1870s until the mid-1900s, and that's the one that started the banana craze. It was called the Grosse Michel, or for those of you who want an English translation from the French, Big Mike. The ba- How did I never know that? <laughs> Apparently, Big Mike was thought to be the perfect banana. And the flavor was completely different from what we know. Speaking of, I actually went to this pop-up magazine show a while ago. Have you, have you gone? I like how
0: we've been in for like 15 seconds and you're already on a tangent here. <laughs> but no, I actually have not been to one, but I know you've said they're they're pretty great.
1: Yeah, you should go. So uh, for those of you who don't know, pop-up magazine tours the country performing a live magazine, curating like 12 or 13 different writers to speak in a night. And they have this live orchestra that actually scores the stories. And sometimes they include shadow puppets or video or these sensory experiences I honestly tell everyone about them. That sounds
0: interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But, but when I was at one in New York, uh, they had a chef who handed out two types of marshmallows to the crowd. And as she talked about cinnamon in wartime, she had us taste one marshmallow and then the other. And it was crazy. So the first one was like a cinnamon sprig flavor. You all know it, it was, it was pretty tasty. And then the second was the cinnamon that used to be available from Vietnam in the 1950s, but was discontinued in the U.S. after the war started. It had this really like sweet and juicy and big red flavor. Hmm. It was almost like too cartoonish to seem like a natural flavor. And you kind of realized cinnamon gum was meant to resemble the Saigon version of cinnamon, not the milder one we've grown accustomed to. Right. And that's kind of the same with the banana. Like the, uh, the gross Michelle was this sweeter, more custardy and really more delicious banana. It was actually so delicious that when there was a blight in the 1950s and the crop started going extinct, Banana companies assumed people would revolt if they switched banana styles on them, which is exactly what they eventually had to do. Well,
0: and to be clear, Big Mike was just one of over, I don't know, like a thousand banana species in the world, right?
1: Mm-hmm. But, but, but a number of them have seeds so hard they'd actually, like, break your teeth if you've been to them. So some are more like plantains and less sweet. Some are totally inedible. But the gross michel banana was considered, like, the perfect banana. It didn't often have seeds. It didn't bruise easily. So you could just pile them on a boat without boxes its flavor was never off, like the bananas you get in the stores today. It grew year-round, and it was hardy and resistant to most things, at least until this mysterious Panama disease started wiping it out. In something like a decade, it basically took out all the gross Michelles with it. Wow.
0: All right. And so just just to tie this up here, the, the Cavendish, which was the inferior banana, both in taste and how it bruised, that was picked as the replacement partially because it looked like the Big Mike, but also because it was resistant to this Panama disease. Is that right? hmm Well, you know, I, I was looking up styles of bananas because reading about the Big Mike made me curious what other flavors you can get from a banana, and here are a few of the ones I really want to try. You know I love lists of, like, strange fruit. So what's in your top three? All right, I'm just going to read off my list here. So uh, so first, uh, the one that I really want to try is called the apple banana. It's <laughs> actually so sweet it's sometimes called the candy apple banana. <laughs> it's slightly pinkish and more juicy than a regular banana and also sweet. And it doesn't really ever
1: brown. And you can find this in Hawaii. It's so funny. Like you can say all these words like juicy and candy apple. And I actually can't imagine how good it is. But what I know is I really want to try one. I
0: know. <laughs> so what else you got? All right, there's something called the ice cream banana,
1: speaking of ones that we should try.
0: It almost sounds like I'm just making these up. This one is real, also called the blue java banana. It's this strong plant that's hardy enough to survive monsoons, but it's also got a vanilla flavor to it. And the flesh is kind of pudding-like, which I can't decide if that sounds delicious or gross, but...
1: But, uh, in fact, a lot of people actually eat this with a spoon. Yes. I I think I've seen monkeys eat those with a spoon, but not wild monkeys. Definitely not wild monkeys.
0: (laughs) Well, a lot of people call it the tastiest banana. And then there's also the red banana, which is short and sticky and also really sweet. And and I don't know. You get lost in all these banana descriptions that I almost want a banana connoisseur to walk me through (laughs) each of these things. But the fact that 99 percent of the bananas that come to the States are Cavendish makes you crave these so much more.
1: So I I definitely want to talk more about the Cavendish. And I I feel like the way it's talked about in these books, it's almost like this mediocre, flavorless garbage fruit. But even mediocre bananas are good.
0: Well, and Americans certainly do love them. I, I was reading this New York Times article on The Secret Life of the City Banana. So there are 20 million bananas distributed around New York City every week, every (laughs) single week. That's 80 million a month and 720 million bananas a year. You like I did the math on that (laughs) so quick.
1: And that's just in New York City. That's crazy. But as much as America loves bananas, apparently India loves them even more. So according to a 2015 article in The Hindu, the country produces 30 percent of the world's bananas, but basically exports none of it. Like, their entire economies in Central and South America built exclusively on banana exports, and India turns down all of that money. Hmm. They only send out 1% of their bananas, and they hoard the rest for themselves, and unlike in the U.S., you can find tons of varieties of bananas there. But that isn't the tangent I wanted to take you on. I wanted to tell you about the weirdest fact I learned this week, and that's that the forbidden fruit in the Bible might actually be a banana.
0: I like how you have a tangent from a tangent, but all right, this does sound interesting though. So so what do you mean by this?
1: So Koppel lays out this amazing argument that the banana might actually be what Eve took a bite out of, and he's got all sorts of evidence for it. So you start with the fact that the banana is, well, you know, this pretty suggestive looking fruit, and you can see why it might be thought of as racy or forbidden. And as you and I have both read before, the Bible never actually like specifically mentions what the fruit is, but it is described in the Quran. And there, Koppel says, it's talked about as a tree whose, quote, fruits piled one above another in long extended shade, whose season is not limited and whose supply will not be cut off. And, you know, as any New Englander will tell you, there's a very clear apple season. But that description, as Koppel points out, really describes the bunches upon bunches of bananas growing multi-generationally and in continuous rings on the plant. And then he backs this up with talk of climate. So basically when scientists looked at the description for the Garden of Eden and this idea of a place that's bound by four rivers, they were already thinking that two of the rivers were the Tigris and the Euphrates. But then they found evidence of two rivers that used to exist near them. And that land wasn't hospitable to apples. It's prime banana growing territory. That's pretty wild.
0: And, And so are there other people who also believe this?
1: Yeah, apparently there were a number of scholars who believed this, including uh, Carl Linnaeus. You know, he's that taxonomist. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, the scientific name he gave bananas was uh, Musa Paradisiaca, or, or Wise Fruit of Paradise. And uh, Koppel has one other bit of evidence. Apparently bananas used to be mistaken for figs before they were well known. Maybe because they had seeds and were stickier, But uh, but Alexander the Great, when he tried a banana in India, reportedly thought it was a fig. And in Hebrew translations, Koppel points out that the fruit's often translated as the fig of Eve. Plus, fig leaves make like a lot more sense as something that uh, they could use to cover up their body when you realize they're banana leaves, something people actually used to use to cover up their bodies in history. Right, right. Well, you know, the,
0: the description of the banana as phallic comes up a lot. And I actually read that in Victorian times, bananas were cut up and sold in foil. And that was because the idea of buying or eating a banana whole would offend these, you know, delicate Victorian sensibilities, <laughs> which is kind of funny to read about. But, you know, what's so funny about this whole forbidden fruit thing is that the banana is basically a sexless plant. I mean, bananas are all clones of one another, grown from clippings and not seeds. It's how all Cavendish tastes so uniform, but also why all those Big mics died off. I mean, they all have the exact same vulnerability. But beyond that, for all this talk about the male anatomy, the fruit of the banana that
1: we eat It's actually the female part of the banana's (laughs) anatomy. That's crazy. And I I mean, the banana is all contradictions. (laughs) How so? So I, I was actually thinking about this earlier, but like almost everything good you say about it has an opposite. So like the plant has devastated countries and economies. You think about banana republics or whatever, but it's also kept nations in Africa fed and out of wars. It's considered the perfect package fruit because it's portable and transports so well without getting the fruit itself dirty. But the peels were also easy to litter, and once upon a time, they were considered the bane of society. It's sold for super cheap in the U.S., and it's almost considered the simple fruit of the people. But to get it here, tons of people are exploited, and, and also all these fancy technologies from the cold chain to railroads to radio systems, they all had to be innovated. Yeah, and there's a ton to
0: cover there, and and I definitely want to start by how the banana got to the U.S., but quickly, before we do, why don't we take a break? So, Mango, it's pretty rare that we have a guest that aligns so perfectly with a topic, but... Today we've got Ken Bannister, TB, on the program. and Now, now Ken's the founder of the International Banana Club. Did you ever think you'd be speaking with the founder Mm-mm. of the International <laughs> Banana Club? And and in case you were wondering, the TB after his name stands for Top Banana, of course. Ken Bannister, welcome to Part-Time Genius.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.
1: Hey, so Ken, um, would you tell us a little about the International Banana Club and why did you decide to celebrate the banana in the first place?
2: Well, this is a fun bunch I started back in 1972, and uh, it all came about because my secretary's husband, who was a stevedore unloading bananas in Long Beach, California, gave me a roll of 10,000 banana stickers. So, (laughs) as president of a manufacturing firm uh, making Reflectosol products, I took that roll of stickers to a trade show in Atlanta, Georgia, and started handing out banana stickers to people to affix to their ID badges, and I assured them that everybody would smile if they saw that banana sticker, one. Two, they would get a discount. Three, it would improve their attitude, and it would remind them to stay in good health and consume one finger or one banana every morning. (laughs) So what I did to get people excited, motivated about The banana turned into a club. I had a card made and decided that I would offer BM's Banana Merits (laughs) and two degrees in Bananastry for sending things to do with bananas in good taste. Nothing mood, crude, or lascivious would be accepted. So that's how the collection got started. This was clear back in 1972.
1: What kind of benefits do you get as a member of the club? And is it true that uh, Ronald Reagan was a
2: member? Well, yes, he was. I, <laughs> I, I I, inducted him. His title was PB, President Banana. Everybody gets a title of their choice. I told him he should probably select the PB, and he said, well, that's fine. Banana. We've had lots of, of celebrities join this bunch over the years because of the purpose, which is to keep people smiling their spirits up and give them a chance to get some recognition.
0: Oh, wow, that's pretty terrific. Now, what's the best response you've gotten from presenting your membership card to someone to get a discount?
2: Well, uh, the best response for me has been uh, getting out of about six different speeding tickets by the California Highway Patrol. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not kidding you. We get upgrades in hotels by simply showing the membership card and saying, well, we, we usually get an upgrade at no charge. But I held it up in, in the window as, as the police officer walked up and said, driver's license and insurance proof. And I said, oh, officer, with a smile on my face, very enthusiastically, no tickets, please, Banana Club. I've had several dozen members report success in getting discounts at restaurants, special favors, at hotels, and uh, you name it. If you ask, you know, if you're not afraid to ask, you'll, you'll get something if you're pleasant about it.
0: I love how all of these benefits have nothing to do with like getting more bananas. It's just that these are pre- even better than that though. It's pretty great. Now you you were on the uh you were on the Tonight show a few years back and and on the show you were showing some alternate uses for bananas. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: <laughs> yes, every morning I have one finger one banana. That's the term for one banana. And uh then I take the peel and I Rub it across my teeth, and it will, you know, if you do this on a regular basis, it will help whiten your teeth. Then, uh, if I have any kind of a bite uh, from an insect, I will rub the inside of the peel on that uh, bite. It also uh, serves as, believe it or not, a treatment for your hair, your shoes. You can shine your shoes with the inside of the peel. That's great. (laughs) I take I take those banana peels in the morning, and I plant those peels at the uh, roots of the rose bushes. What's it, that do? Well, that's it. serves It's like fertilizer. You can't waste anything these days, you know. <laughs> and you know, they all come in the shape of a smile. Those bright yellow, elongated, edible fingers. They they're just. Uh, I have I've been eating one hand a week for over, well, gosh, I'm seventy eight years old. So I think I started eating bananas when I was about five or six. But isn't it funny that that banana roll of banana stickers got us started, and we've got an international club with over 55,000 card-carrying members around the world.
0: Wow, that's pretty great. And
2: I must answer a hundred or more emails every day, trying to keep people's spirits up, especially when things go wrong, like this morning, and... We have to keep smiling. We have to keep our spirits up. We have to be positive. And we have to support the team. And that's what the Banana Club's all about.
1: So uh, I did want to talk just for a second about the International Banana Museum. Uh, it's actually yep. in the Guinness Book of World Records for most items <laughs> devoted to any one fruit. And uh, when I was online, I saw some really funny things. I, I saw um, this portrait <laughs> of a of a bride uh, yes. Who was holding a, a bouquet of bananas? I, I saw yes. the, the banana putter that, that you've handed out to various celebrities like Bob Hope and stuff over the years. But what what is your yes. favorite thing in the International Banana Museum?
2: Well, it was and still is and will always be the petrified banana that uh, a gal, when I was giving a lecture back in Wisconsin, raised her hand and said, Ken, Banister, I've got something for you. I've got a petrified banana that I found in my closet. It had been in her closet I guess a year or so. And she I said, Well if you send that to me I'll give you a hundred banana merits and a degree in bananistry, a master's degree. And she did, and I had it on the wall of the museum for almost twenty five years. And it's in the shape of a smile, but it's certainly an old gummer smile. <laughs> Dark, dark, brown and hard as a rock, wow. <laughs> and mounted on a, in a frame.
0: <laughs>
2: it's really something to see what people send. And of course, if somebody sends something that's off color, I send it right back with demerits.
0: Oh, <laughs> we'll have to uh, we'll have to come check out the museum sometime. But for all of our listeners, you can visit or join the International Banana Club online at internationalbananaclub.com. But, Ken Bannister, top banana, thank you so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius.
2: You betcha. My pleasure. Keep smiling.
0: Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking bananas, and specifically how the bananas started migrating up to America.
1: So about five or six years before they made their glorious debut in Philadelphia, this sea captain named Lorenzo Dow Baker, he bought about uh, 160 bunches of bananas back with him. Almost on a lark, like he'd gone to South America ferrying gold miners down there, but when his, uh, when his boat started leaking, he realized he needed to make a pit stop, so he pulled into Jamaica where he fixed his boat. And for some reason, he loaded it up with bananas. And if the wind hadn't been at his back, the fruit might have gone bad on the journey. But he made it back to New England in a quick 11 days, and he sold the fruit for $2 a bunch, netting him about $6,500 in today's money. Wow. And within a year, he was the biggest exporter of bananas from the Caribbean. He even bought land in Jamaica, where he started the world's first commercial banana company.
0: Right, but you know, I remember reading that Baker was only so good at his job. I mean, bananas were good business, and there are accounts of his workers lighting cigars with five-dollar bills and getting into all sorts of trouble in the Jamaican nights. But Baker was a seafarer through and through, and along the way, he teamed up with his most enthusiastic buyer. It was this gentleman named Andrew Preston, who'd risen up the ranks from a janitor at a Boston grocery store. And when he first saw the bananas at the port, he immediately scooped them up to wholesale. And before long, the two had taken on investors and started Boston Fruit, which three or four names later would be called Chiquita. But Andrew was kind of a genius, right? I mean, he was definitely clever and very ambitious, and and he wasn't taking any chances with his produce. Entire boatloads of the fruit could show up at the harbor rotting if winds were rough or if the, if the trip you know, took a few days too long. So he really invented the cold chain, which you know we talked about in our inventions episode a few weeks ago. But this was before air conditioning. So Preston cooled his bananas the old-fashioned way with giant blocks of ice. Mm. And he also ensured that bananas kept cool along the way in storerooms and refrigerated boxcars every step of the process. As Koppel puts it, ice became so essential to banana profitability that at least one banana merchant bought up every ice factory along the Gulf Coast. His reduced no-middleman cooling cost made his company the second biggest success story in the banana industry. That company was called Standard Fruit, or what you might know now as Dole.
1: Hmm. And you can start to see why Big Banana is referred to as El Palpo or or the octopus. Mm -hmm. They started getting their tentacles into other businesses and owning the entire supply chain. One other small thing I read about Preston that I really liked, though, was that he painted his fleet all white to reflect the sun. I just thought it was so smart because you read about it now as this technique for keeping your house cool. But it's funny that it's been going on since the 1900s. And he also marketed the boats as cruise ships where tourists could tag along for a fee on the ships to Jamaica. And if they were feeling too hot at any moment, they could open a vent and let the chilled banana air cool them down. (laughs) (laughs) Let's
0: take a step back for a moment. It's actually an insane thing Preston and others were doing when you think about it. I mean, they were essentially buying this super perishable item, transporting it thousands of miles and selling it as cheap as possible. It doesn't seem like that could work. Mm -mm. And Preston wanted to make the banana more popular than the apple, which sounds outrageous because the apple is clearly the most American of fruits. (laughs) But he actually managed to do this. But the only way the economics of something like that can work is if you work on a really large scale. And by 1911, one of the boats they were using – The 6Aola was big enough to carry 500 railroad cars full of bananas. That's nuts. (laughs) Yeah, the boat was half the size of the Titanic, and it was only one small part of Boston Fruit's Great White Fleet.
1: Actually, it's funny to see how much has changed and how much hasn't in the banana industry. So in that Times piece you were mentioning earlier, there's this super cute part where all these green bananas come to New Jersey and make a pit stop to ripen. And the way it's described, it's almost like they're hanging out in tanning beds, just relaxing for three or four days before they have to complete their journey. And they're just focused on getting their glow on. <laughs> on on one hand, the banana industry is just impressive. I mean, they came up with a tropical radio system so that boats were alerting the laborers of the exact moment their boats were arriving so that fresh green bananas can meet them at the docks and get loaded up at the perfect moment possible. And everything was just synced up so exactly. Like, this is the early 1900s, and they were also incredible marketers. They put coupons in cereal boxes for free bananas that were somehow paid for by the cereal company to make the meals healthier. But How? They, they invested in infrastructure, too, like railroads. Railroads were built across South and Central America purely for the protection and distribution of bananas and really not at all to help the people of those countries. But the model that banana companies established was ingenious.
0: Yeah, but also evil. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's essentially the model for banana republics. So the banana company would come in, offer to build a railroad with government's help. Then when government funding dried up, they'd offer to build the rest for free if they got a sweetheart deal of some sort, you know, the low taxes, free land, little oversight. And once they had their hooks in and needed the governments to bend on their whims, they'd install a new dictator. By the way, did you know O. Henry actually came up with the phrase Banana Republic? Mm-mm.
1: He wrote it in this short story while he was fleeing the law in Honduras. <laughs> That's amazing. So, uh by, by the way, I, I know I told you I didn't really want to talk too much about Banana Republics because they are interesting and actually deserve their own show. But I did want to talk a little bit about uh, Jacobo Arbenz, who was elected freely in Guatemala in 1951. And and I wanted to talk about it because his story is just the most nakedly transparent of these stories. So for uh, context, at the time, the big banana companies were hoarding land, and they secretly knew that this banana blight was coming in a big way, and that they needed as much land to turn out as many viable bananas as possible. And as the blight came, their plan was simply to expand into new territories. But Arbenz hated the fact that the banana companies owned all this land. I mean, supposedly 70 percent of the nation's arable land, and they weren't using any of it.
0: Wow. All right. So so he just tried to take it back?
1: Kind of. I, I mean, he was also negotiating for workers' rights, which is what Boston Fruit was now called, conceded to. But uh, but I mean, he also wanted this unused land for peasants and he was willing to pay for it. He told United Fruit he'd give them six hundred thousand dollars. And when they laughed and asked where he got that sum from, which they valued, uh, they valued the land closer to 16 million dollars. He responded that he'd taken that estimate directly from the declared value they were paying on their taxes. Like, United Fruit had, for years, been cheating on their taxes, and Arbenz and the government just, you know, accepted those numbers at face value. Hmm. But when Arbenz tried to take their land, United Fruit basically ruined him. The next terms in United Fruit's negotiations were hand-delivered by the U.S. State Department. I mean, this is a business dealing. Think about how crazy that is. And the company also funded journalistic research on Guatemala that showed Arbenz was a communist, which he wasn't. But they circulated the report to 800 lawmakers and staffers in D.C. And in a city plagued with rabid McCarthyism at the time, they spent a year convincing Congress Arbenz was the Soviet dupe. And they also circulated these horrible photos of Arbenz's atrocities of corpses thrown into mass graves, which were actually photos of earthquake victims. but oh, wow. Presented like they were casualties of uh, Arbenz's rule. And the fingerprints on this are pretty damning. I I mean, the U.S. Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, was a partner in United Fruit's law firm. And Dulles's brother was head of the CIA. The money and interest, they were all super entangled. And once the congressional opinion was swayed and the banana companies had made their case, this is about 1953, that's when Eisenhower authorized the CIA to get rid of our bins. And when Arbenz finally resigned, he was humiliated in front of the press. I mean, he was stripped down to his underwear before being escorted onto a plane. And for the rest of his life, this man who'd, like, tried to do good for his country was this stateless, depressed shell of a man who finally committed suicide. And also, we could get cheaper bananas. And that's just one horrifying story of El Pulpo. There are dozens of them as it ravaged through various countries in Central America.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're you're right. This is... Definitely depressing.
1: I know. Um, so I was thinking we should lighten the mood with some banana humor. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I, I know you did a little digging on why uh, slipping on banana peels became such a comedy trope. I like how you set the stage talking about our bins and you're like, tell some banana humor. <laughs> All
0: right, well, let me pull this up here. But but looking at this, so before it was a visual gag, the banana peel was, was kind of a hazard. I mean, people just littered them everywhere. In Virginia Scott Jenkins' incredible book, it was called Bananas in American History, She talks about how kids at Sunday school were warned that a stray peel could lead to an innocent person getting injured and how that injury could leave them in the poorhouse for life. (laughs) So Boy Scouts were told picking up a stray peel was a good act for the day. One scam artist, according to The New York Times, was arrested after she claimed she'd fallen 17 different times on various banana peels, (laughs) all in a span of like four years or something. But as the streets became cleaner, it it found its way to vaudeville. And according to the A.V. Club, Sliding Billy Watson was the originator. Now, don't confuse Sliding Billy Watson with Billy Beef Trust Watson, who was a competing comedian at the time.
1: <laughs> so I also like what you were talking about, uh, Charlie Chaplin.
0: Oh, yeah. And the gag was used by everyone. Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, all the silent film stars. But there's this conversation where a film director asked years later, how do you make the banana gag feel fresh? And he asked Chaplin, do you show the banana first and then the lady or close up on the lady and then the banana and then have the slip? And Chaplin immediately said neither. You show the lady approach, then the banana peel, then the two together. Then you show the woman gingerly stepping over the peel and disappearing down a manhole. <laughs> I know the companies doubted whether they could switch out the Big mic and still have people buying bananas, but they pulled off an incredible transition.
1: Yeah, that's true. We eat more bananas now than we ever did in the Gross Michelle days, but... Part of it is just that banana companies are excellent marketers. I, I mean, any group that could so underhandedly, like, pull off those coups must also have an incredible handle on traditional marketing. And with things like, uh, you know, the Miss Chiquita campaigns or how they got doctors to endorse bananas as a great baby food or whatever, I mean, they quietly upped the demand. It's true. But I think we should get back
0: to the original question, which was what's the state of the Cavendish today and is it going extinct?
1: Yeah, so the truth is banana companies are worried. So while the Cavendish was resistant to the Panama disease that took out the Gros Michel, that disease has other variations, and Cavendish isn't holding up well against those. There's also this airborne virus called black Sigatoka that requires tons of pesticides and chemicals sprayed on the bananas. It really isn't good for the workers' health, and there's really no such thing as an organic banana on the market today. But there is some hope. There are these amazing labs in Belgium and other places where they've been stockpiling cuttings and trying to graft together a stronger banana. And and there are some ideas. There's this apple banana called Goldfinger that doesn't brown at all, but it also isn't as sweet. It's this banana that sort of meets a lot of needs and it's hardy. but it's hard to see it as this pure replacement for the Cavendish. Scientists have also decoded the banana's genome, which helps, but no one's confident that the Cavendish can be saved. And at the same time, no one's slowing down on eating bananas either. There's there's also this much sweeter banana that comes out of the Philippines that some scientists are hopeful about. It's way more fragile, but if the banana industry could switch from just piling gross michelles on boats to boxing bananas to transport the Cavendish, maybe they can adapt to this Philippine banana. It's it's a big question mark, though, and, and I want to end this on a happy note. So what's something you can tell me about the banana that's fun? Well,
0: um, you know, for one, there's this great passage in Dan Koppel's book about how the banana is used in Uganda. And he talks about how it's used as currency, I mean, sometimes by farmers to pay back loans, and how there are songs sung about bananas, and, and not in a kitschy way, but almost this epic history poem kind of way. He mentions this 1991 Red Cross report that documented that if famine and war are connected, the fact that bananas are so plentiful in Uganda have helped the country avoid both. But here's the part that I really love, and it's, it's how much the banana is part of the culture. Let me just read this passage from it. It says, um, there's a special breed of banana that's consumed when twins are born. Another type marks the passing of a relative. Families are guaranteed prosperity if the mother buries her after birth under a banana tree. There's a banana that, when eaten, helps return a straying spouse. (laughs) One breed represents the lion and is said to improve male potency. And at the center of it all is Matoki, the word that's used interchangeably for both food and banana. So for Ugandans, nothing says welcome home more than this comfort food served on a banana leaf saucer.
1: I love that. But uh, you know what else I love?
0: The part-time genius Mm fact-off? Is it already time? (laughs) All right, well, let's do it.
1: But do you know that uh, bananas will glow bright blue under a black light? They light up like phosphorus and jellyfish. I mean, except they're bananas. But the weird part is green bananas don't glow. Only the yellow ones do. So I know you said Indians love
0: their bananas, but per person, Uganda has them beat. The country grows 11 million tons of fruit, which bears out to 500 pounds per person annually. I mean, this is according to Dan Koppel's research, and he says that in remote villages...
1: Where there's little else to eat, it can be up to 970 pounds per person. Whoa, that's insane. So here's a quick one. Uh, Did you know that the strands in a banana are called the phloem or phloem? I'm clearly not good at pronouncing things. No, you're really not. (laughs) All
0: right, here's something fun for people who love comics. The first Miss Chiquita was drawn by Dick Brown, who also created Hagar the Horrible cartoon. And when the character was revamped, it was done by Oscar Grillo, who drew the Pink Panther. (laughs)
1: <laughs> here's a gross one in uh, in Bombay a first time thief stole a gold chain and as he was chased and cornered by police he swallowed it and to get it out of his system they force fed him 48 bananas good god I'm not sure why they knew 48 was the right number but apparently it worked
0: it is my favorite number but I don't think I'm going <laughs> to eat that many bananas but alright this is kind of amazing and it comes from Pittsburgh which is also the supposed home of the banana split but you know how ethylene is used to ripen bananas right sure Well, it's also combustible. And according to the New York Times, a mishap with the gas caused the Pittsburgh Banana Company building to explode
1: and rain bananas down on the city. (laughs) Oh, man. So I I don't love explosions, but – I do love that you said Pittsburgh Banana Company building, <laughs> and I also love the idea of just like plucking bananas from the heavens, so I'm going to give it to you. But before we go, I, I just want to give a special thanks to Nolan Brown, who helped with the research this week. Yeah, and we should
0: also give a shout out to Dan Koppel's book, Banana, the Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World. And and before we go, what episodes? We've got a couple of great episodes coming up. At the mm-hmm. end of this week, we've got one that we've been working on on super fans, right?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm hoping we can cover a lot about the Thanalos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Those are Barry Manilow fans, uh-huh. yeah, as well as Harry Potter, big football fans, all kinds of fun stuff there. And then we've got another very different one coming up uh, next week on how big is the U.S. military and how is the money spent there? So that should mm-hmm. be a really interesting. It would be one awesome. As well. But we love hearing from so many of you. Don't forget you can reach out to us, part genius at howstuffworks.com or on our 24-7-FACT hotline, one eight four four pt genius We've heard from so many of you telling your friends about the show. Please keep doing that. And if you get a chance, feel free to uh, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan
1: McNeil does the editing thing.
0: Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
1: (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec-producer thing.